Well, we're going to be starting a series here for the fall that will take us up to Advent in the book of James. And uh, we're excited about uh, our study. And I promise we'll have a thing on the wall next week for those of you who may be bothered by that right now. Like, um, I did call. They didn't call back. So we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, the book of James, and uh, it is a, an intensely practical book. That's not to say that the rest of Scripture is not... Uh, practical, but James just kind of gets right in your face from the get-go. So we're going to kind of get into that uh, today and uh, spend some time in this uh, great book over the next uh, couple months. I uh, ask you to invite or invite you to, to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. God, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word that reveals who you are to us. And then beyond that, God, just gives us direction and guidance. Your commands are life. They show us the way of blessing. So I pray that as we spend time here in the book of James, just today and, and, and over these next few weeks, that we would be challenged and encouraged and built up. And I pray that you take this passage this morning. God, I don't have anything to give or offer or say on my own. Uh, this is your word. This is your truth. So through your powerful spirit, God, take it and do what you will in our lives to accomplish your purposes for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alexander and the very bad, horrible, I just got that backwards, the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Yes, I did steal my sermon title this morning in the bulletin from this, right? Uh, Alexander in his book testifies, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of the bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake I dropped my sweater in the stink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box. And Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. 
In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. Nobody even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At the end of Alexander's day, it didn't get any better. He writes, there were lima beans for dinner, and I hate lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. And the cat wants to sleep with Anthony instead of me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. (laughs) My mom says that some days are like that. (laughs) James tells us that some days are like that. We're going to unpack that a little bit. That's one of the major themes that he jumps in here right at the beginning. Monty Williams, who's the head coach of the Phoenix Suns, in last year's NBA Finals when they were playing the Milwaukee Bucks, after a loss, one of the first two games of the series, I don't remember which one, but after a loss, people were asking him about the difficulty of it and, and, and how hard it was going to be to beat Milwaukee. And, and he, he, he gave this quote, and I, I, I loved it. The guys who went to TLC last year will remember this. Monty Williams looked at him and he said, listen, this is what I told our guys. Everything that we want as a team is on the other side of hard. The championship that we want, the recognition that we want for all of our hard work, everything that we want is on the other side of hard. And James is telling us that exact same thing, the, the maturity that we want, the, the, the becoming like Christ that, that we want, the blessing that we want, all of that for us in the Christian life. And the Bible makes no bones about this from cover to cover, that everything we want in following Jesus is often on the other side of heart. And that's where James goes here at the beginning. So I want to get into that in just a minute. Because we are studying this book over uh, the next several weeks. I want to at least give a little bit of background without taking too much time here. Okay, Uh, So the author, and this is going to come into play, I think this is significant for some of our understanding of what he says about trials here in a few minutes. I believe it is James, the brother of Jesus. Most commentators will say this, and um, we see that James referred to in a couple passages in the Gospel there and um, well, we we know some things about James. We know that he came to Christ later in his life. He, he, the family thought Jesus was crazy. They didn't believe right away. Uh, we see that Jesus made a, a resurrection appearance just to James. We read that in First Corinthians. So uh, and then James is with the, the 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 disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So it seems like somewhere between the crucifixion and Pentecost, James gave his life to to to, to, to his Savior to Jesus. To Jesus, and then he becomes a pillar in the church, uh, one of the main church leaders, and we see this uh, throughout. And we'll touch on that in a few minutes. But so uh, that's who James is. I believe James, the brother of Jesus, is the author of this book. Uh, James uh, was written to the twelve tribes that were scattered. 
We see in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 11, it specifically says that after Stephen was persecuted, that the persecution in Jerusalem ramped up and the believers in the church of Jerusalem scattered from the city. They left. They went out to other places there in, in Palestine and in Syria and Damascus and they went about preaching the gospel. And I think on face value, that's who we take this uh, as being the intended audience, that these, these scattered Jewish believers. But I think we would be very much uh, appropriate to say that this book is written to the scattered people of God. And that's what these Jews were. But it's not exclusive just to those believing Jews. And I, I believe that we can make that jump and stay faithful to the text there by saying, yes, that, that's us as well. We, we are the scattered people of God. We are living, in a sense, um, away from our home in, in, in exile. And so I think the lessons here in James apply to us as well. Um, James is, uh, out of all the New Testament books, James most resembles Old Testament wisdom literature. And you see that the way uh, James uses a lot of brief, direct, practical admonitions. James is very loosely organized. There is some organization, but it, reading James is, is not unlike uh, reading Proverbs in some ways. The way he kind of loops back to things and has all these short statements, and then you see him appear again later on. And uh, James is very much uh, in the pattern of wisdom literature from the Old Testament. And James is very concerned with practical holiness. There are over 50 imperatives in the book of James, which when you consider that this is a five-chapter book, that's a lot of commands, over 50. I think it's around 53, 54 imperatives. James is very much concerned with a lifestyle that flows out of faith, okay? He's concerned with a lifestyle that flows out of faith. Many people accuse James of being like opposed to Paul, Paul, very strong in his, in his writings, right? We're saved by grace through faith, not of works. And, and James very strongly says, works must accompany faith. Faith without works is dead. And so some people who like to criticize Scripture they say, see, they disagree. Like, no, they're, they're very much in harmony with one another. Uh, James was writing to believers. He wasn't so much concerned about presenting the, the gospel that they, 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 you know, as far as clarifying that. These are people who are already believers. He's telling them, you're claiming obedience, you're claiming faith in Christ, you better obey. And Paul goes to the same place. Uh, Romans 12, right? He spends 11 chapters talking about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And then in chapter 12 says, now sacrifice yourselves and live your faith, right? So the message of both of them is, is, is the same. So let's talk about trials then. This is, like I said, this is where James goes first. View trials and struggle from a spiritual perspective, because they provide the best opportunities for growth. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. This is how your faith grows. He's calling us to view our trials from a spiritual perspective. Now, I said a minute ago, I think it's significant to understand that James is the half-brother of Jesus here, because as soon as we understand that, we start thinking, we understand that James is writing from a life of trial. This isn't some guy, you know, sometimes I think we view the, the biblical writers as these guys who just had it all together. They had all the answers and, and uh, these, these holy saints. That never, no, man, you, you look at David and, 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 and Moses and Abraham and, and on through Scripture, man, they faced trials, and James is no different. He didn't just sit in a church office all day with heavenly music playing around him and, and, and everything good and easy. Um, most scholars believe that Joseph, 
the father of, of uh, the, the, the husband of Mary, right, in the birth narrative, is that Joseph died some, somewhere in, in Jesus' childhood. This is why you get that interaction from the cross. Mary, behold your, 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 your son. John, behold your mother. Right? The, the, Jesus is turning over that care to John because Joseph apparently was off, off, the, off the scene here. So most believe that Joseph had died. So if that's in fact true, and I, I think it, it is, James lost his dad at, at some point. Uh, even though James and, and his other brothers that we see in Scripture, uh, there was a time when they thought Jesus was nuts. Uh, they didn't follow him. They didn't, they didn't believe in him. Um, but at the end of the day, Jesus was still his brother. And James saw and knew that his brother was, was murdered by the Romans on a Roman cross. Uh, even though he didn't agree with his brother, probably seeing that was, was hard to see. He saw his mother's heart broken as her son suffered and bled and died. He saw what this did to his mom and, and his family. Uh, then, like I said, he becomes a pillar in the church after his salvation, only to see Stephen, one of his leaders, stoned in Jerusalem. Can, can you imagine what that would be like if we saw one of our church leaders here taking a stand for Christ and, and dragged out into downtown Grand Rapids and we watched our brother, our friend, who we've worshipped with for years, be, be killed and murdered in front of our very eyes by an angry mob? Like He saw that happen. And then he saw as week after week his church family, with, uh, you know, less attendance uh, each week as people scattered and scattered and scattered and it probably affected the finances and the budget, right? James isn't writing from a glass house. He experienced trials and struggle. He walked the church through the Jew-Gentile collision, Acts 15. He was one of the lead guys at the Jerusalem Council when they're trying to figure out how the traditions and, and the faith of Judaism collide with this ministry to the Gentiles. That was intense. That was hard. That was a struggle. There were emotions and in, in such on both sides. You had thousands of years of history colliding with, with the, the new covenant. What is that? I mean, that would have made dealing with COVID like a breeze, right? James struggled. He faced hard things. And it's into this context, he says, count it all joy. So the first thing we see here is this word count or consider. Uh, to have a spiritual per- perspective requires conscious efforts. Count it. Consider. I have to think my way through trials because what James is asking us to do here does not come naturally. It doesn't come natural for us to embrace and view trials from a spiritual perspective. I must have a conscious embracing of a Christian understanding of trials. I cannot control my circumstances. I cannot control them. But I can control my attitude and my response, and I can learn how to interpret my circumstances. There is a difference between knowing my circumstances and understanding my circumstances. Right? Paul, in Philippians 2, writing from prison, demonstrates this. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul knew his circumstances. He was in prison. He doesn't talk about his circumstances in Philippians 2. He talks about what God is doing through his circumstances. Paul is demonstrating the difference between knowing my circumstances and understanding my circumstances. Joseph 
who had been left uh, for dead by his brothers and then sold into slavery. Joseph illustrates the same thing, right? Remember at the end of Genesis there, after all things had, had, had come about and, and he had revealed himself to his brothers and they had been saved from a famine and Joseph is able to look at this hard life that he had been given and he says to his brothers, you intended this for evil but God intended it for good and through this the salvation has come to many. That's an understanding of my circumstances. But that requires conscious efforts on my part. Consider trials with joy. So this conscious effort means that at some level, I'm going to choose to embrace these things as joy. Now, right away, this statement can hit us the wrong way. It sounds irrational because this is not typically how we think of hardship from an earthly perspective. To be honest with you, I don't always love this statement in the book of James. I don't even like always love it. I, sometimes I just don't like this statement in the book of James, right? I, I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to feel annoyed and miserable. And I want you to notice that I'm annoyed and miserable, right? Because if it can't get better, I either want you to be annoyed and miserable with me or I want you to be so annoyed with me that you step in and help me fix the problem that I'm in, right? This is how we tend to process trials and struggles. <laughs> but that is not a profitable way of dealing with trials, is it? So what's James asking of us here? James is not talking about happy emotion. There's a lot of us sitting here this morning with happy emotion. All of our football teams won this weekend, right? We're happy. That's not what he's talking about. He's not telling us to pretend that trials are easy. He's not telling us to not be sad when we're hit with the tragedies and struggles of this life. Oh, yes, a cancer diagnosis. How awesome is that, right? Oh, happy day. I just lost my job. Awesome. So good. We can't afford dinner next week. It's the best. Right? Zippity doodah. My kids are walking away from the Lord. Cool. No. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about learning to see differently. It's a confident assurance in a God who's working. And I can embrace hard things because I know that something good is happening. Right? Learning to play this thing. Did anyone in here ever attempt to learn to play guitar? Is it, is it happy the first five minutes? <laughs> right, right? No, it's like the worst thing in the world. Your finger, you're like, God did not make my fingers to push in on this little string for this much. I mean, you're, I'm not, what it, what it, right? a minute and a half in, you're, you're, you're done. Like you are in pain. Like your fingers hurt. And then people start introducing things like bar chords. And you're like, fingers weren't, they can't do that. And it hurts. But you do it, right? You do it. Dave Schneider has done it recently. Learned to play the guitar. Dave, right? It's not a happy experience. And then you hear what it sounds like. You know, some of you ever have kids take violin lessons? <laughs> Enough said, right? Uh, it, but it's, and Hannah, that's nothing against it. Hannah's a wonderful violin player. So, uh, um, but the beginning of that thing, right, playing a guitar, it's, it's, but, but there's a satisfaction, right? And, and, and you do it, and you make a little progress, and you go back the next day, and you're like, oh, it still hurts. 
but, but I'm doing it. And, and I find this satisfaction, this joy, because I know that there's some transformation happening. I don't enjoy the process, but I know what's happening. That's what he's getting at here. It's a confident assurance based on knowing that God is working and will work. And we see this in places in Scripture. Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Hebrews 12, 11 captures it so well. For the moments, all discipline. And by discipline, that's a broad word here. It means trial, struggle that God allows into our life. It doesn't just mean punishment for wrongdoing. Discipline is just the hard things that God allows to shape us and form us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained is a key word, meaning sometimes this takes a while. Right? That's what he is talking about. When I know that God is doing something and I have the opportunity to grow, I can view my trials a certain way. One commentator writes for the Christian what James is talking about here, the strange ability to experience joy at the same time as sorrow is a hallmark of genuine faith. And so when my neighbor comes a few years back, and I'm fairly certain it was when Zach was diagnosed with diabetes, and we were talking about it, and I remember him looking at me and going, I just don't get it. He goes, your God must be really big and really real to you for you guys. And again, I wasn't handling this the best. It wasn't like some super Christian thing, but I was just saying, hey, we know God's in charge, and it's hard. But we, and he's like, your God must be really big. You must have real faith in your God. And I'm like, that's all I have. That's the only reason why I can say anything positive about this circumstance, right? That's what James is talking about here, confident assurance. How else are we to view trials from a spiritual perspective? Accept that trials are a certainty and that they will take various forms throughout our lives. They are a certainty. Notice in verse 2, again, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet trials of of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. It echoes Jesus' words in John 16, In this world, you will have trials. We're going to have all kinds, and they're going to hit us from different sides throughout life. James, uh, there's a few of them mentioned specifically in James. We already know he's writing to a scattered, persecuted people, the diaspora, the dispersion. So, you know, he has that in mind. As we read on, and we'll see this in the weeks to come, he also addresses other kinds of persecution. In chapter 2, he talks about people being hauled into court. Uh, in chapter 5, he talks about people being oppressed by large landowners. In chapter 5, verse 14, he talks about physical illness. In chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about financial hardship. I have, I have a guess that probably one of those categories in some way, shape, or form fit us in some ways in the course of our lives. Right? Accept the fact that trials are going to come. The next part of the perspective, I must endure trials so that they will truly have their full effect on me. I must endure trials so that they will truly have their full effect on me. There's, there's a key nuance here. Okay? The presence of trials in and of themselves don't work maturity. 
Notice how James nuances it. He says it's the enduring of the trial that works perseverance, and this results in blessing and growth. Okay? Don't short-circuit the process. All right? It, I, can, I can walk in a weight room or my basement, my treadmill. The presence of the treadmill <laughs> is not going to help me shed pounds. Right? I have a treadmill. You must be in shape. Well, <laughs> nor do I get, I get on the treadmill and I, and I start running and I'm like 33 seconds in. I'm like, oh, this, this hurts a little bit. Okay, I'm done. You know, get off the treadmill. And tomorrow I get back on the treadmill and it's the same thing or I hit that like, oh, that, okay, I'm done. And, and if I'm bailing every time I start to feel a little discomfort, right, I'm not going to grow. It's, it's staying on that treadmill. It's pushing that, that, that bar up again, even though it hurts and painful. That is when the muscle gets ripped. That's when stuff can start happening now and growth can happen. I have to endure the process. This is what completes and perfects my characters. But here's the deal. In trials, I'm generally more concerned with escaping the difficulty than becoming something better or stronger for God's glory. And so I spend my time asking the wrong questions. We tend to ask the question, how can I get out from this? How can I make this easier? How can I escape this? When the question I should be asking is, what is God doing here? What does this teach me about myself? What does this teach me about my strengths or weaknesses? What is this helping me become? That's where I find joy. That's where I find joy. As I endure trials, I see that God is battle-hardening me. He's equipping me. And we know that experienced, battle-hardened soldiers are better prepared and equipped for a life of service. That's what God is doing. But I have to stay under it. New facets of my character are developed that could not exist without testing. If I lack something in my life, I don't gain by nothingness. I don't gain by nothingness. Mr. Molda is coaching my son in soccer. Zach comes home from practice one day. He's like, Mr. Molda's making us kick with our left foot, and I have to do push-ups if it doesn't go so far. I'm like, good. <laughs> the other day, Mr. Molda, we were playing soccer in the backyard, and I told Zach he was not allowed the whole time we were playing to use his right foot. But, Dad, I'm like, nope, Mr. Molda said, Right? Use your left foot. But I don't kick as good. I know. Use your left foot. Because if, if you practice and all you use is your right foot, are you going to become a better soccer player? No. Do something that's uncomfortable, that's hard. That's what James is talking about here. And this is why I can have joy. I don't have to like it. I'm not happy about it. And it can be hard and be a struggle. But I know that God is doing something. Leads to the next step here. Pray for wisdom, for navigating and understanding trials, right? Because the trials can be hard to understand. They can be hard to understand. I don't get this. I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why this is happening again. I don't understand why this isn't going away. Seeing history and circumstances from the divine perspective requires divine help. I must have godly wisdom and perspective to navigate the trials of my life and to possess joy. 
And so when Zach is diagnosed, I know you've heard me tell us that when, when Zach was diagnosed with diabetes, one week shy of his second birthday, that's why he's in there that night and he's asleep on his bed and I walk in there and I'm looking at my son and I'm going, buddy, I don't know why. I don't get this. I hate this. I hate it and I don't get it. And I wish I, wish I could take it. I don't know why God's given this to you, especially you're two years old. And there was some of that frustration. God, God he's two. What are you doing? But I prayed over my son that night. I said to him in his sleep, and I prayed over him, buddy, God chose you to bear this for reasons and purposes that I don't know. But I know he's good, and I know he's faithful, and I know he's going to use you in an amazing way for the kingdom through this weakness. And that's all I have. And I prayed that my son would understand that that day. Praying for wisdom. Where do you find yourself lacking wisdom today? For me, a lot of ways. Parenting, right? We feel the weight of that. Parenting's hard. And it doesn't stop being hard when our kids go to college. Right? Sometimes I don't know where mental illness stops and sin begins. I don't, I don't know what to do with that sometimes. The workplace, right? Our workplaces can be places where we need wisdom. Our workplaces change. My workplace feels a little different these days. God, give me wisdom. Help me navigate this. You guys face that. These are the various trials of various kinds. There are things that we need to ask God for wisdom for. What is it? Finances, relationships, broken family dynamics, whatever it is. Those are the things God is saying through James, ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. And we could take a whole series of messages to unpack what godly wisdom is. But I'll just say this in summary. that Wisdom always starts with the fear of God. Proverbs mentioned this multiple times. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So when I'm asking God for wisdom, one of the big things I'm asking for is, God, you have to show me who you are in this. you got to remind me who you are so that I respect you and fear you and have the right perspective of you. Because if I have that, I can navigate a lot of things. So the beginning of wisdom is just asking God, show me who you are. And, and, and then wisdom involves obedience and practically applying what I know to be true. And it's asking God to help me to see, to act, to learn, to discern. It's asking God for strength. This is what I'm asking for. James, actually, later on, you can write this down and look at it in chapter 3, verse 17. He defines wisdom uh, a little bit as far as his perspective of it. And that helps inform our understanding of how we're supposed to respond to trials. And wisdom can show up in so many different ways. It can show up in the form of people can show up in the form of me coming across scripture, a change in my perspective, a change in my way I think, the change in my ideas, but God does answer these questions, and I know that he can give us wisdom. I don't know if he's going to take the trial away. And this also informs us a little bit too, but be careful sometimes with not just how we pray, but how we talk to our kids about trials. So, so my, my, my son will come and say, why isn't Jesus taking the anger away? I'm asking, I'm praying for God to take the anger away. See, and if I, if I tell him, hey, keep praying, God will take it away. God will take it away. That's not really wise on my part as a parent. I can't promise that. I don't know that. But if I keep telling him that, now, is, is it right and okay to ask God to take things away? Absolutely. 
But if that's the only thing, and that's the only focus of my prayer in this, and that's the main focus of my prayer, I may be set up for severe disappointment. And if that's what I'm telling my kid, that God is a God, he'll take it away, he'll take it away, he'll take it away. What happens when he doesn't? What happens to his faith? But what I can promise him, God will be faithful to you. God will give you wisdom. God will never leave you. God will give you exactly what you need when you need it. I know that because he promises that to us. That's what I have to give. And I love what James says here. He says God gives liberally, without reproach. This means God is generous. He gives with sincerity. He gives without hesitation and reservation to all who ask. God doesn't crumble or criticize. Oh, here comes Craig again asking for help. Right? Even on my best days, <laughs> even on my best days, I can get tired of requests. You know, my kid will come ask me. I'm like, I told you how to do that already, right? This is, this is, this is what we do. You know, why don't you remember what I told you last time? We're going to do this again? Like, I already told you this. What would you do with the thing I gave you last time? God doesn't do that. He says he gives generously, sincerely. Just, yeah, I want to dump wisdom on you. Ask me for it. I'll give you everything that you need overflowing over and over again and again and again. And as I look back on my life, I can look back and say, you know what, God didn't always remove the trials. But I can say that God never once abandoned me and never once did not give me what I, didn't, what I needed. He never failed in that way. Ever. When I was traveling for, uh, for school, I don't remember, this, this was uh, Cedarville, when I was traveling for Cedarville, um, was a bunch of college students, and we'd be put up oftentimes in people's homes, host homes, you know, when we were on these traveling teams. And, uh, and especially like older people, they loved having college guys in their house. And they loved feeding us. And you'd get these, and, some, and they'd always have their things sometimes. And this, I remember this dear lady, we stayed at her house, this older lady, and there was three of us guys, and, um, and her thing, she had cookies and milk. And it was awesome. Now the milk, the cup, the glass was like, huge. And she just, she must have thought college boys are growing boys and they need their milk. I don't know. So, so I ate the cookie and, and got the milk down. It was good, you know, but I'm like, okay, I'm done. Well, it was one of those things where she doesn't really ask. She's like, oh, you boys must want some more milk. Let me give you some more milk. And I'm like, ah, you know, and she fills it all the way up again, all three of us. And we're like, oh, thank you. And you're trying, and you're getting it down, and you're talking. And, and well, I made the mistake, and we used to play these types of games with each other all the time. I made the mistake. I left and went to the bathroom because I had two glasses of milk. And um, I walk out, and guess whose glass of milk is full again? Mine. Because when I walked out, she came and my teammates go, he, he said he wants more milk. <laughs> and she filled it again a third time. And I, it was one of those, you kind of look at it, you're just like, well played. I got to give it to you, you know. Uh, but you're like, ah. Oh. And um, I thought of that when I was thinking about this, this description of God. That's God. He's, he's there and he's, he, he's I want to keep giving this to you. Here's more milk. Here's more wisdom. Here's more help. Here's more strength. Over and over and over and over and over again. That's what he does. 
pray in faith when you ask God for wisdom. James says this, pray in faith without doubt. What he means by that is this. God gives to those who exercise faith. What this is is a complete trust in God's power, God's goodness, and God's character. Okay, understand what I'm saying here. This is complete trust in God's goodness and power and character. James is not saying we don't have questions or that we have to rid our minds of all uncertainty or that we have to be perfect. Abraham and Moses stumbled in their faith journeys as they sought and struggled to trust in God's promises. And it's said of Abraham, right, that he was a righteous man, that he remained steadfast. And you're like, like well, he did have a couple, but, but the overall trajectory of his life, he didn't doubt God's goodness. It's okay for me to say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Because even in that statement, what I'm doing in that prayer is admitting that I'm struggling, but I'm still asking God for help, which demonstrates that I still believe in Him and His goodness and His faithfulness. So I can have doubt, but I'm still going to direct that to God, just like the psalmist did. God, this is how I feel. I'm angry, I feel like you're not here, I feel like this is hopeless, this is how I feel, but I'm telling you this because I know you can do something about it. And that's different for James than the person who is double-minded, and that's where he goes next. The double-minded man who uh, is unstable, who who doesn't have his complete trust in God. I'm double-minded when I waffle between finding relief by asking God and then doubting him and putting my faith in other things. And actually, if you want to look it up later, James, again, defines double-mindedness in chapter 4, verses 4 through 8, when he talks about a person who has friendship with the world and and waffles back between that and and, and trust and reliance on God. And James is going, that person's not going to receive anything of the Lord because really what they're doing is they're casting aspersions on God's character because they're not really believing God is good and they're not really believing God is faithful. And this person is then the doubter. They're, They're like the drunkard walking, unstable in all their ways, tossed like uh, the waves of the sea that have no form. They become whatever the wind makes them. That's what we become when we don't have confidence in our God and in his process of working in our lives. And the last place that John goes, and Griffin, why don't you come on up? We'll get ready to sing here in response. This section, and we're going to end it by just saying this. James is saying, respond well to the test that money brings Here's kind of a, a poster child. Throughout James, he's, he's warning us about riches and money. And, and uh, that's, I believe, one of the tests that, that he's talking about here as well. He said, listen, some of you are poor. And they were. Those who had been scattered, being oppressed by wealthy landowners, they didn't have anything. And James is saying, I want to remind you that when you have nothing, you have everything. Because in your nothingness, that humble estate, that forces you to a place of dependence on God. And there's no better place to be. And that's why he turns around, conversely, and warns the rich. And says, you better be careful. Because if you're placing your confidence in riches, and you're failing that test of not trusting in God, those things are going to fail you. They're going to wither away like the flower in the hot desert sun. And you'll have nothing. So he even warns the rich, be humble. Cast yourself in your dependency on God. Are you running to the Father? Are you running to the Father for wisdom and help? Trials are going to come, and I don't have to be happy about it, but I can look at them and say, I know God's doing something. 
And I, I know I shared this the night we did our Brazil testimonies. I was so thankful. I, sometimes this plays out over the, the course of months and years. Sometimes you get to see it in the course of weeks, days. And again, I'll never forget a couple of these guys. Phil Schellenberg getting COVID down there and, and watching him, I'm sorry, Aaron, uh, dealing with that and, 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 and saying, this is what God's teaching me. This is okay. I'm like, whoa. Jack, watching Jack cry, be emotional about, like, ah, okay, I'm going to have to do this. And I said, I said Jack, do, do, do you want us to change up how this is going to play out for you and where you're going to stay next week? And he said, no. I came on this trip to be stretched and to do hard things. And so I'm going to do it. And I watched him struggle and embraced that. And like six days later, I saw Jack crying again. And it was for a very different reason. He said, God's worked in my life. Like, I don't want to go home. I, I want to, I've learned God has changed me. I'm like, that's, that's it. 